0: This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is Most Innovative Companies from Fast Company, where we speak to visionary founders to understand how they think, how they innovate, and what lessons they may have for you and the businesses that you run in every shape and size. I'm James Vincent, a founding partner at Founder. Before we get into the podcast this week, we have great news. At the Fast Company Innovation Festival in September 19th to the 22nd, so coming up. Brian Chesky from Airbnb is going to join me on stage as a part of the Most Innovative Company podcast and also as a part of this wonderful event. To find out more about this event, go to fastcompany.com. This is a story about being a relentless innovator and just an anecdote from my time working with Steve Jobs at Apple. You know, every week for 11 years, we would go up and see him every Wednesday from one till three and talk about ideas for storytelling around all of those great products. And most weeks, it was pretty good. Some weeks, it was freaking awesome. You know, we sold the silhouettes, sold Mac versus PC. But every now and again, it was just a bad week. And uh, one week was a particularly bad week and that we've thought three big ideas with 30 examples of each one. And each one of them just kind of went flat. And as we were walking out the room, Steve was like, can you stopped back for a minute and um, closed the door on the boardroom and sat down. And he said, I just want to tell you a story, James. Henry Kissinger, um, who was the Secretary of State in the early 70s, had commissioned a report from a senior analyst around Vietnam. The guy, you know, is a deep domain expert. He writes an incredibly comprehensive report. It goes in, uh, and two days later, it comes back and there's handwritten on it from Henry. Uh, is this the best you can do? So the guy's like, oh, man, wow, maybe I missed the Russian angle or the Chinese angle. So he goes at it again, spends a few more days, really like super thorough, sends it back. And two days later, it comes back. Is this the best you can do? He's like, wait a second, what am I missing? Oh, maybe I've missed some historical context or the role of Cambodia or whatever it was. And he rewrites some sections and he's like, okay. And he puts it in and Henry sends back for the third time, is this the best you can do? And he's like, yeah, this is the best you can do. So Henry says, okay, then I'll read it then. And I think in hearing that story from Steve, because that was really all he said to me, the lesson I took from that was take things to a place where they're the best they can be before you share them with me. And so I started to every, I don't know, two or three months, I would cancel a mark on the night before because I felt like it wasn't the best we could do as a team. That's kind of the bar that you set for yourself as a relentless innovator, I think, you know, during that time. Uh, Apple and with Steve, that was what he expected. the team around him, was to be a relentless innovator, was to, is this the best you can do? And I think a great example of a relentless innovator is uh, my guest today, uh, Irving Fain from Bowery. And I'm really excited to get into conversation with him. I'm uh, super excited to have Irving Fain um, from Bowery here today. They are revolutionizing the way that we make food. And uh, indeed, maybe even more than that, uh, the supply chain in its totality. And they've uh, raised, I don't know, half a trillion dollars, I think. Anyway, a significant amount of money to do just that. So Irving, great to have you. Really good to be here. I'm going to go all the way back to the basics, just to make sure that everybody in the Fast Company community understands what vertical farming is. So just describe to me what a Bowery is. So we build smart,
1: warehouse-scale indoor farms that we locate close to the communities we serve. We stack our crops from the floor to the ceiling under lights that mimic the spectrum of the sun. We grow in a totally controlled and contained environment. So 365 days of the year, independent of weather, independent of seasonality. It's reliable, consistent supply of high-quality, fresh, protected produce. Our product is grown completely pesticide-free, completely agrochemical-free food. It's 100 times plus more productive than a square foot of farmland. And all the while, we use a very small fraction of water compared to traditional agriculture. And what makes this all work and come together is, first of all, robotics and automation that we design and develop. And then the Bowery operating system, which is software, it's hardware, it's computer vision, it's AI, it's sensor and controls, and it monitors, maintains, and optimizes the entirety of our operation. So in essence, we've taken what is a supply chain that unfolds over thousands and thousands of miles and a number of different players, and we've brought it into a single building close by the communities we serve where we can deliver a product in a day
0: or so versus weeks or months of time. First time I met you was like nine months ago. And I remember coming and hanging out with you for an hour. And, um, you know, I heard some conversation around lettuce and warehouses and vertical farming. And, but what I really heard was an aspiration to make a systemic change in the system, right? And to like reevaluate the system. It felt to me as if the lettuce was a prototype for greater things. Not that the lettuce isn't important, but it's the first step. I don't know whether it's too big to say this, but as books were to Amazon, is lettuce. To where Bowery's going? First of all, I'd say
1: maybe only be so lucky to build a company you know, as, as large, as important, as enduring as Amazon is, and we, you know, there's a long way to go from where we are today to reaching that point. But there's no question that there's a, an analog there in the sense that you have to start somewhere in every journey, right? As they say, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the, with a single step. And on top of that, you know, I, I'm a big believer that no matter what business you're building, no matter what company you're working on, focus is critical. And you know the way focus manifests itself for Bowery was around what we were deciding to actually grow in the beginning. And so just because we felt confident that ultimately we could grow a very large and wide variety of crops, didn't mean that that was the right place to start. And what we needed to do was find the right point to focus to develop the technology and the platform itself where we could ultimately expand from there. I think the other piece of the puzzle here for us is this has always been about a much bigger challenge and and you know if you look around the world today and it's actually for me just personally been really shocking over the last few months just to see the consistent and constant drumbeat of headlines around drought conditions in different parts of not just the US but the world crop shortages in a number of different areas you know loss of water in key agricultural areas I mean the unpredictability and the uncertainty that we're living in amongst right now is only becoming more acute. And we need to be thinking now in a world that is consistently and constantly changing, where the components of our ecosystem that we used to be able to rely on may not be so reliable, what's the solution and what's the system that we need moving forward? And the focus at Bowery really is is looking at this and saying, hey, wherever food is needed, we can grow it. And how do you provide a resilient and scalable
0: food supply chain, not just for today, but for tomorrow? There's an adjacency part to Bowery's, right? I think I read in the Financial Times, you had that great article and it. One of the things you said was um, a Bowery for every city. And so is that local global thing a part of the dimension of the need for Bowery? We
1: have over the last set of decades made an understandable and globalized switch in the way we manufacture and procure goods because certain parts of the world were more efficient, faster, cheaper mm-hmm. in producing certain, either the complete good overall or parts of a good that can then be shipped somewhere else and right. the good could be could be built. And that made a lot of sense in a world where you could trust and rely on transportation. You could trust and rely on the geopolitical relationships that underlie the trade itself that we're counting on. And you could trust and rely on the system itself. And what was initially pretty shocking to people around COVID, especially, you know, is specific to what we do at Bowery was we take for granted that when we walk into a grocery store what we want is sitting on the shelf and you know we take that for granted in the western world or developed world in general and all of a sudden people started walking into stores and saying oh wow i can't get the food that i want that i buy on a regular basis and everybody started to realize how dependent on not only other parts of this country in the us but our parts of the world we are for the food that we're consuming and now people are starting to think about regional resiliency and supply chain resiliency and wondering, like, how do I make sure my country or my region is supported and the people who live in that region are supported with what they need? And essentially what we do at Bowery is just that. We've built a model that is resilient to the uncertainties and the vagaries of climate change, essentially. And it's also, in its essence, simplifying substantially what is a complex, drawn out and a supply chain with many, many different individuals along the way. And we collapse that supply chain down into a single building, very close to the communities that we actually serve. And so we can deliver a product in a day or so versus weeks or months of time. It's a higher quality product. It tastes better. It's more nutritious. And it's grown a lot more sustainably. And you can trust and rely on it with surety of supply no matter what's
0: happening around you. Because we went so meta, I want to go really small, which is but super important because I, I don't know if anybody that hasn't tried uh, Bowery lettuce should try it because it tastes absolutely delicious. We did a side by side taste blind tasting at the office, and you guys killed it. But I, I have a very sort of straightforward and simple question like, don't you need soil to grow lettuce that tastes that good? Is it representing the best possible climate and using technology? Is that an oversimplification of what you're doing in there?
1: If you step back and look at agriculture, you know over the last 10,000 years, so you, you think about the you know all the way back to the Tigris and Euphrates, where we were realizing that we could take seeds and plant them and we could be stationary and live in one single place instead of nomadically wander around to find our next food source, we've spent in essence the last 10,000 years in our agricultural lives trying to manage against a set of external variables which are out of our control. And so what we're doing at bowery is actually flipping that equation entirely on its head and all those externalities that are uncontrollable are actually completely controllable our environment and so what we're able to give the crops who asked is it the perfect environment i think there's actually a fair question is what is perfect and if you actually talk to chefs you know dan barber will talk about this that sort of the imperfections is what makes food great and i don't disagree with him in fact i think that sometimes like the discoveries you can make when you have a particularly hot year or a particularly wet year can be delicious, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean they have to be random from nature. And so what I mean by that is we can create and control all the variables a crop needs. And so you asked about soil specifically, you actually don't need soil because what soil really is outside is it's a conduit by which plants take up water and they take up nutrients. And there's a very important biome that lives around the roots themselves in the soil. We have the ability to give the plants the light they need, to give them the nutrients they need, to give them the the water they need. And we also can create and we monitor a really healthy microbiome around the root structures and the plants. And we eliminate a lot of those pathogenic challenges that emerge outside. We can still stress a crop by giving it less water, giving it more light. We can, all the types of interesting components that can create diversity of flavor, even beyond what we already have are possible. It just can be controlled
0: versus completely randomized. That's incredible. A new variants of lettuce and other foods in the future of Bowery. Should we be excited about the things that you're gonna discover We can uh, you can create?
1: I think this is one of the most interesting, for me, parts of what we do at Bowery, which is, Back to sort of what we've been talking about, like if you look at seed selection outside, it's really driven by a few variables. And this is why people talk about the narrowing down of biodiversity so substantially. The things we care about when we select our seeds are, does the crop resist drought? Does the crop resist pests? Right. And does it transport long so distances? So well. out in the world. Yeah, this right. is what matters if you're a farmer. You right. have to have drought resistance, pest resistance, and transportation resistance yeah. so the crop shows up and it looks good. And none of those factors impact us at Bowery. And so when, when we're not impacted by those factors, we have partnerships and we work with seed companies around the world to look in their seed banks you know, decades back to find interesting flavors and oh, interesting wow. varieties and interesting crops that we may not actually have tried before only because outside they don't fit these kind of three core rubrics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that are used to select our seeds. One of the parts that we just launched our strawberries recently, and we launched them in a two-pack, so there were two different berries—a garden berry and a wild berry. And part of what was so fun about that is listening and talking to people who were like, "Wow, I had no idea you could get two strawberries." That had such just a different a taste. Strawberry, right? Yeah. Right, right? We think of like, "Oh, that's a strawberry. Oh, that's yeah. an iceberg." That there's this sort of one monotype of yeah. individual crop, whereas there's actually just an extraordinary amount of biodiversity that exists in this world in general. We just, for the most part, don't get to experience it. So the first time I walked into our research farm and they're working on strawberries, there's 24 varieties laid out. And I went and tested all these 24 strawberries and each of them had a different taste, different texture. And so you just think about like what's available to yeah. us as consumers that we just haven't been able to try. And so one of the the core bit of focus for us is like, how do you help? not only democratize access to quality produce, but how do you make sure you're introducing people to produce that tastes like what produce is really meant to taste like and used to taste like.
0: So, okay, there's a bunch of vertical farming companies. What are you doing there that's different to the other guys?
1: We have really, believed in technology as a core component of our business and what we're building from the very earliest days. And so part of that manifests itself in the growth system itself. And you know the robotics and all the automation that we design and develop inside of our farms, they're completely automated at this point. The other piece that's, that's incredibly important to us is what we call the Bowery operating system. And the Bowery OS is, it's the brains of our farm. It's actually not even the brains of our farm, it's the brains of our entire operation. It is our, it is our central nervous system in many respects. And it is a combination of software and hardware and computer vision and artificial intelligence and sensors and controls that manages and maintains and optimizes everything that happens in our operation from before seed's ever planted to when our product is delivered to one of our partner's distribution centers. And so the first place the, the operating system manifests itself is, is inside, of the system, inside the growth space. And so we're collecting millions of data points in real time. And the data impacts the quality and the health and the yield of our crops. And then we have a plant vision system, which is taking photos of crops in real time. And it runs those photos through, through deep learning algorithms that our team developed. And we can both understand what's happening to that plant, but also predict very accurately what will happen to that crop. And then all that data gets run through other machine learning algorithms. And our system says, based on what we see and what we expect, what tweaks and changes around that specific crop do we want to make? And those changes get pushed out and automatically adjusted in real time. So you have this recursive, very fast learning loop that happens without any human involvement, without intuition or judgment. And it's constantly working across not only are one farm, but the entire network of farms. And so the more farms that come online, the more opportunities for learning and optimization emerge. And so in many ways, we're building this distributed network of farms. Right. Every new farm benefits from the network that's come before it. That farm then starts contributing data and the network itself gets stronger.
0: This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So as you keep going then, so back to the sort of, you know, first step, you know, is you're really building an operating system that will be more, will be iterative, will keep learning to get better and better and better. And as you grow, you'll be able to figure out how to, Create the maximum best possible environment for growing all kinds of food. Like, where does it stop? So, strawberries is great. Love that, and I love lettuce on a good day. You know, but I'm still a little hungry after that. Like, where do you go after this?
1: One of the things people say, "Oh, well, what can you grow? You know, hydroponically." And yes. the answer is, you can actually grow everything. Hmm. So, people go to Epcot Center and seeing, you know, they're growing trees. Now, not everything's going to make sense economically but when we think about the crops that are good candidates for what we're doing at bowery it's a trillion dollars a year globally in market opportunity and growing. So it's an enormous opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it certainly stands far, far beyond lettuces and herbs, right. you know, fruiting crops and yeah. berries. It goes into root vegetables and tubers. It goes into mushrooms. I mean, there's so many places that you can take this forward from where we are today. And going back to what we said earlier, focus is critical. right? Making sure we focus on the system and the technology, you know? And because that technology is so important to both variety of what we can grow and the economics of the way the business works, we've really focused on building core technology that we know not only works till today, but that will scale till tomorrow. Because back to where we started this whole conversation around the mission and where we're focused, like. If we're going to truly make an impact on a problem that really is global in scale and is getting even more substantial and challenging, we need to make sure we have a system that not just works in the mid-Atlantic right. of the U.S. or works in you know the, the tri-state area, but it works not only across the U.S., but it works across the world. And that's what we have.
0: I want to go back. I want to talk about Irving for a minute, if you don't mind. Who is this guy and where did he come from? Providence, Rhode Island, as I remember. You know, you did a bunch of different stuff, right, before – 2015, I think you started Bowery around that time. Before that, you were in finance for a minute. You did analytical software, which I'm guessing has helped you a little bit. And so I I kind of think of you as a relentless innovator, but I'd love to hear sort of where did you come from? How did you become the person that has just so brilliantly articulated the potential future of securing the food supply? If I think about kind of the through line to today,
1: it's certainly just entrepreneurship and, and and maybe innovation you yeah, know though though i think innovation maybe gives me more credit in the early days than <laughs> than i deserve because i'm not sure uh my, one of my early entrepreneurial endeavors was buying uh plastic animals at the corner store for a dime and selling them for a quarter on the uh <laughs> playground so i don't know how innovative that is but it was it was lucrative at eight years old or however old i was at that time um I just I don't know where it came from or why but I've just always been interested in in creating and building and 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 solving you know again problems and quotes some of these were not major problems right. but i don't know what drew me to it but it was always the thing i loved and i always tell people like if anyone who knew me when i was younger would look at me today and say of course this is the seat he's in and what he's doing they they would probably be slightly surprised by the farming angle of it all um because i certainly didn't grow up as a farmer nor nor have i spent my life farming i've I've really spent my life creating and i knew this was always the path i wanted to be on and and even my, my stint in finance was focused on building a set of skills that I knew would be valuable to me moving forward. I was this naive 21-year-old kid, and I said, how does one learn business? Um, and this was when sort of dot-com had come crashing down, the, the tech world looked like nothing like it does today. And so I said, oh. I'll go to Wall Street. That's how I'll learn business. I'll, I'll work at a bank. And so uh, I'm not sure I learned business from that, but I did learn a lot. Um, and, and even interestingly, people say, oh, you must regret that now. I don't regret it at all because I learned a lot of great lessons there, including that it wasn't the destiny for me. It wasn't where I was going to spend my life. And from that point on, I, I, I've i always, since I was young, believed technology and, and innovation can solve hard and important problems. Yep. I spent time you know, building iHeartRadio. hmm was there when the iPhone came out and, and this notion of an app was appearing. Mm-hmm. And we said, hey, we, we've got a great asset. We can do something with this. And, and ended up building iHeartRadio, which you know people have taken long after me and built it into just an incredible product and platform. And from there, I started an enterprise software business. And I was so energized by just building of this business and the culture of the company and and just the creation process. And that, that drove me for a while. You know, six years in though, I picked up my head and I didn't have the personal passion for the problem itself, and it was clear to me like the innovation piece of it's important, yeah. but the passion for the problem itself has to matter as well right and so I knew that what I did next needed to be something that not only I cared about personally but it needed to be solving a problem that I thought had a much greater societal impact than yeah. just the folks who were on my cap table.
0: I want to push into this because I, I feel like you're 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 in a good way, an outsider in the industry. And I think sometimes that's hard to do from within an industry. And so I felt like maybe you brought all of the skills from somewhere else where you were like, okay, I've figured out technology and I'm looking at analytics software and I know that what could happen and I wanna solve a really, really big important issue. And sometimes it takes someone from outside an industry to see the opportunity and to come in. Um, Do you consider yourself a sort of outside innovator that could kind of have a refreshing look an industry that was maybe struggling to scale because it was was a little too stuck in its niche as it were
1: so i would absolutely say i'm a, an outsider when it comes to agriculture overall i mean there's people who spend their entire life working in and around agriculture but that's an advantage but you have to be thoughtful about how you play that advantage right I say all the time that you know ignorance and naivety is actually a an advantage for an entrepreneur. And it's something that you can use to your benefit if you're thoughtful about it. Because when you're too deep into an industry or too deep into a problem, it's very easy to start to see all the reasons why new solutions can't work or won't work or haven't worked in the past. Mm -hmm. And being sort of unconstrained by all the prior experiences and endeavors allows you to run through walls or at least attempt to that Mm -hmm. most people in their right mind would never even try from that industry the counter to that though is completely ignoring sort of incumbent wisdom and knowledge and experience can also be a foolish decision Mm -hmm. and so it's about in my mind finding like the right balance between where can your outsider perspective allow you to take chances and make choices that others wouldn't and where can you avoid falling into just obvious pits or into obvious walls that you won't break through by leveraging and respecting knowledge from folks who've been in that space for a long time and so i spent a year and a half just testing and, and working on different approaches and possibilities to how we could build bowery and and i started the whole endeavor looking at agriculture broadly and i i, I learned and anything I could. I read everything I could. I watched everything I could. I talked to anyone I could. And as I narrowed down closer into what we're building today at Bowery, I didn't only want to talk to people who were excited about it. In fact, I was more interested in talking to people who were skeptical of it. Mm. And so I I made sure I sought out a number of folks who were convinced it couldn't work. Right. Because I wanted to know why they were convinced it couldn't work. And maybe they were right. And, and it, it, it was really important to understand both sides of this. And it can be easy as an entrepreneur to have confirmation bias. And if you are too much of an outsider, sometimes that confirmation bias can just get fueled. Because especially an idea like this, it sounds good. It makes sense, right? People are like, oh, yeah, of course that'll work. Of course that'll work. And so, you know, I sat down with professors and other folks who've done research to say this is an impossibility for A, B, or C reason. And it's interesting because we've actually proven a lot of that research not to be accurate over time. and it, But I'm glad that we entertained and understood it because it helped make sure we approached the problem in as measured of a perspective as we could and balanced that incumbent knowledge yeah. with that sort of outsider right.
0: relentlessness. So this whole podcast is around innovation. And uh, the people that read Fast Company are in all kinds of companies. They're in startups, they're in bigger companies, they're in innovation roles, they're CEOs, They're And so, you know, one of the questions I'm consistently asking is like, how do you think about innovation? And how do you create maybe a specific question for you within Bowery? How do you ensure that innovation is built into the culture?
1: It's an interesting question from two sides. Like, the first piece of it is like, we sort of can't help but be innovative (laughs) in the sense that what we do doesn't have a precedent. To be fair, it does in the sense that A people have been growing food indoors under lights actually since the the 80s. NASA was doing this in the 80s because they were trying to figure out how we we're going to grow food when we were interplanetary. It started right, right, with... Right. We're
0: going to science the shit out of that, yeah, right? Was it, that was exactly it was I exactly
1: mean, <laughs> But it actually started as a, a bit of a space race between the US and the Russia because Russia was trying to figure out how to grow food and we said, well, we got to figure this out too. And uh, so it's a bit of a, a sort of a Cold War legacy right. in that regard. But then what happened is universities picked it up and, and labs picked it up. It, it was just... Economically, didn't make any sense. Um, so that's number one. The other piece of this is greenhouses. So greenhouses have been growing food indoors and under, you know, under glass for the better part of 100 years. I mean, one thing that's interesting, the Netherlands are the number two global food exporter in the world behind the US. And if you think about how large the Netherlands are, it's quite a feat. Why? It's right, because right. they've optimized greenhouse technology for such a long period of time. So I say there wasn't a precedent To be fair, there were folks who have paved the way for us to take the next step forward. But the step we're taking itself, moving indoor vertical farming, does not have a real precedent. So it was sort of inherently innovative in in its endeavor, right? Like the operating system, the automation, the way we're growing, building the brand that we're building is new. But that said... It's new and then it isn't, right? It, meaning, it's new and then it's all of a sudden the thing you do, and and there's this interesting aspect of of organizations, and, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately, which is, you know, the bigger an organization becomes, like, there's there's at some point this implicit resistance to change. You know, people kind of like consistency and they they like routine, they like habituation, patterns, right? And so, it, it, it's it's really critical to ensure that there's constant change occurring within an organization and change can occur on a product level change can occur on a process level right it it can work in in all different ways and so we're we've recently made a number of changes internally to, to how we're working and the way we're organizing around different bodies of work and so that will ultimately pull through i hope to innovation in the work itself but it started with the process and the way the work is happening And so I think innovation can fly at a number of different levels, but it requires intention the bigger an organization goes. And so, you know, it's been interesting for me because it's sort of as I said, was, was endemic to who we were for a long time. And it still is such a core attribute of who we are at Bowery is, is reinventing and reimagining consistently. And we talk as a team about not getting tied to anything that we do today necessarily as a sacred cow and being willing to re-examine everything we're doing and the why around it. And just because it made a lot of sense three years ago or five years ago, we know a lot more today than we did three years or five years ago. And so maybe what we thought made a lot of sense or what did make a lot of sense doesn't today. And the willingness to sort of tear it down and rebuild it again, that is a critical component to an enduring company. Right. And really my focus here at Bowery is, is building a generational business that is really changing the face of food and agriculture. And so to do that, and to be enduring like that, you have to be willing to continually reinvent, mm-hmm. and that can be difficult and
0: challenging and uncomfortable right. and all of, all of the things. But it's critical. It's in the DNA of the company now. Hopefully, over time, you're building the DNA of the company. How have you thought about assembling the team that can take us to this place that, as you said, is just is you know is raw innovation? Which are the people that are domain experts, which are the people that are making the big leaps? Well, it's interesting because if you
1: define the domain
0: as indoor vertical farming, mm-hmm.
1: there essentially are no domain experts because <laughs> there really hasn't been much of a domain. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting problem, yeah. right? You know, nowadays, if you're building a, a software as a service an enterprise SaaS company and you need domain experts in sales, right. there's a lot of them, right? Yeah. You need go to market experts, they're there, right? You need product experts, they're there that sort of doesn't exist in the domain in its totality. Now, within narrower bands of domain, so plant scientists for instance or plant biologists and physiologists, we have incredible domain expertise within, you know, knowledge around data and AI or software and hardware. Like we have incredible domain experts in robotics and automation. We have incredible domain experts in mechanical engineering. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And that's actually for me what is one of the most exciting and interesting parts of Bowery is just the sheer number of different perspectives experiences and expertise in different domains who all come together around a common problem
0: what's well, a great answer i mean it, it also is fairly combustible right i mean it's a big challenge to have all of these people you know i just an example like pixar right before pixar you know movies were made a certain way and you but Steve brought together sort of Ed Katzmall and James Lasseter, like great storytellers, great technologists, all in one place. And everyone's like, oh my God, they've sort of never had a bad movie. They do one a year. And so that, you know, I, it, one of the questions was, uh, I remember was like, would you rather have a good idea or a great team or a great idea and a good team? And they were like, we'll take a good idea and a great team because the great team will make sure the good idea gets great. Yep. Whereas the good team will make the great idea good. That's exactly right. So I feel like there's sort of you're creating a system, a way of working that will continue to explore and innovate within the way you've assembled Bowery itself. Is that true?
1: It it is, and even more so, Like we have this really fortunate confluence of variables, which is a very large economic opportunity in front of us, a huge cultural and societal solution to important problems and a really complex set of problems themselves i always say to people you can find huge economic opportunities which don't have much societal good and maybe aren't very complex you can find organizations that do enormous societal good but don't have much of an economic opportunity maybe they're complex or not and then you can find really complex problems that maybe have one of those or none of those but to put them all together that's a really unique mixture of those three variables and so what it means is it self-selects for a certain type of person we just have an extraordinary set of people who work at the the company with like i said different perspectives and points of view and you put those individuals together around a common goal and exactly as you said like it creates magic
0: in a lot of ways so what kind of leader does it take back to you this organization you've just described, which is probably most people would find quite tough to manage, because there's all these different variables. And you're even saying, even two years ago, if we'd set something up, we're gonna keep challenging it and keep challenging it and keep challenging it. So how do you think about sort of what I witnessed, you know, in seeing you amongst your team is just how you can be incredibly granular one minute and incredibly focused on things and then see the big picture. And I saw that sort of like aperture shift, you know, big to small to big to small. So everybody understood the big picture was important, but no, 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 but that little thing has to be absolutely perfect. So what, tell me a little bit about your leadership style.
1: So first of all, yeah. It's interesting to see and just reflect on my own leadership style because it's evolved over the course of Bowery as it needs to, right? As an, as an organization grows and changes and evolves itself, like so must the leader. Um, because what, what the same as I said before, the solution for one of our problems five years ago yeah. may no longer be the solution today because we're different. The leadership style that worked five years ago, in fact, almost certainly doesn't work today. Yeah. And so your job as a leader sort of first and foremost is to be evolutionary. And so that's something that I constantly focus on and and where and how can I be different and more effective and better for the moment in time we're in now and what's ahead. That said, you know, particularly in a business like ours, which is quite complex, quite cross-functional, it it is important though, this is true in any business, is as a leader, like the bigger you are and the more mature the business is Mm -hmm. and the more mature and strong and substantial of a team you have under you, the easier it is to sort of be disconnected from the day-to-day reality of the business. And having comfort with some level of disconnection is actually sometimes a challenge as a founder because it sort of started with you. Mm -hmm. And it's very strange to sort of hand off your vision and your ideas and the incredibly important components of what you're building into someone else's hands. Mm -hmm. And that's absolute necessity. But at the same time, maintaining a connection to some of the pieces that really matter is also really important. And especially in a business like ours, I hold a lot of import in understanding what's happening in the day-to-day to a certain extent. Because it's important for me to be able to explain to somebody where we are, why we are where we are, and where we're going. But the bigger an organization gets, the more you have to be willing to be a little bit further away. Right. And you have to be smarter and more thoughtful about when you dive in. Because if you dive in too frequently, you
0: also lose the broader vantage point. Got it. Let's imagine Bowery five, 10 years from now. What does that look like?
1: The problem we're solving at Bowery is a problem that's not only relevant to the cities we're in today or cities in the U.S., but it's relevant to cities around the world. Uh, This is a, a global challenge. And unfortunately, it's a global challenge that's only getting more acute. And it was interesting, I was reading an article the other day about climate adaptation. Mm-hmm. And essentially the premise was that emissions reduction, renewable energy, you know, EVs, all these types of technologies are critical because we have to cut down on the amount of carbon we're producing. But at the same time, there's a certain amount of change that has now been embedded in our system that isn't gonna be reversed. And so we also need to come up with adaptive solutions to those changes. And climate's impact on agriculture is absolutely one of these changes and challenges. And so our focus is building a global business with Bowery farms around the world, in cities across the world, not only growing the crops we grow today, but growing a much wider variety of produce that becomes a much larger portion of the produce section
0: in grocery stores and other channels around the world. Fantastic. Well, that was an excellent conversation, Irving. I really enjoyed it. A lot of fun. Thanks, man. So we just had a great conversation with Irving from Bowery, a great example of a relentless innovator. Some topics that were brought up here were really fascinating where he came from, doing analytical software, learning from finance, being an entrepreneur, and then coming into a category as an outsider. And some of the perspective that that gave him to create a technology solution, um, which is really what he talked about a lot, which is the operating system. And maybe it's lettuce and strawberries today, but ultimately in the future, I thought the dent in the universe, it seemed the future could be, pretty significant in a world that is so clearly now unstable um, and scarily so. Even this summer, we're seeing just climate change. You go to fundamental questions about where does the food come from, just as we go to fundamental questions about the supply chain, about how we survive the future. And I thought there was great optimism in how we was thinking about the future and that we can apply ourselves to Providing food through innovating through technology. The other thing was innovating as an outsider and not an insider, but at the same time being incredibly methodical. I thought there was a methodicalness to Irving that he sort of switched the aperture from big picture to incredibly methodical and, and systematic, which also probably is required in a business like that. I think one of the answers of what his team looks like was all kinds of different people. And, you know, his, his quick answer was, well, there hasn't really been a vertical farming category. So where do I hire people? And so you had all kinds of different people coming together. And that requires a certain type of leadership, which we also got into, which was how do you kind of run and lead a multivarious company, which is kind of hasn't existed before? What type of leadership does that require? How do you shift apertures? I thought he did a great job of doing that. And then You know, in the end, the impact of whether he'll know he's successful or not is if, you know, in an insecure environment, whether or not food has been more secured. seems to me, you know, if it's true, if the lettuce is the prototype and is what they're doing there in Bowery the equivalent of what Amazon did with books and is now 42% of e-commerce. Let's see. All right. That's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to Most Innovative Companies wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And if we also want to hear from you. So let us know what you'd like to hear more of. Send us an email at podcasts at fastcompany.com or tweet us at hashtag Most innovative Companies. Most Innovative Companies is a production of Fast Company in partnership with founder FNDR. We couldn't afford the vowels. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Our sound design is Nicholas Torres. Writing is Matthias Sanchez. Alex Webster and Nikki Checkley helped with the production. This podcast was done in collaboration with my wonderful partners at Founder, Stephen Butler, Becca Jeffries, and Nick Barham.